Hello, hello, welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina, and today we're gonna to be talking about dolls. So this is the extended version of my dolls video, which I published on Monday, last Monday. So I initially wanted to talk about dolls because I came across this, um, well, actually, let me backtrack. One, because there's been a lot of Barbie news lately. And then on my Twitter timeline, there was discourse around the Met Gala where someone had screenshotted this person's TikTok who was like, why are there no, like, Barbie-themed Met Galas? Or like, you know, why is there no Met Gala that's fun? And they listed the idea of, like, a Barbie-themed Met Gala as a potential idea that would be fun. And... The discourse on my timeline was that there were some people who were just like, oh my god, like this person doesn't understand fashion at all, you know, and, and going on about how like it's important to have designer showcases and whatnot. But I have always been someone that despite the name of this podcast, I have always felt that lowbrow culture is extremely important in not just informing highbrow culture but also just like as a representation of society and of history and so you know it, it led me down this like wormhole where I was thinking about how dolls have actually been such a significant part of fashion history and of our relationship our personal relationships with fashion and our personal relationships with history if we look at American Girl dolls so I am definitely excited to talk about this also, this podcast episode is just like, you know, there's just like a lot more stuff that I wasn't able to fit into the video. So we're going to be talking about the creepiness of dolls. Um, we're going to be talking about ball jointed dolls in Japan and living dolls, um, if you've heard of that. And I also got to sit down with Dr. Jillian Hernandez, who I'm really excited to share the interview of because I quoted her in my original research, but she is a professor at the University of Florida and she's also written a book called The Aesthetics of Excess, The Art and Politics of Black and Latina Embodiment. It does deal with Bratz dolls, Barbies, um, and how Nicki Minaj identifies as one. It also has work on Betty Boop. So that's just like a really interesting read and check that out if you want to. All right, so let's just dive right in. So today, many people consider the doll mainly a plaything for children, but dolls were at once commonly used by people of all ages as important religious totems. For example, some of the earliest dolls that have been found by archaeologists are paddle dolls that were produced in ancient Egypt for religious use. The use of dolls as religious tools is kept alive today in religions like Espiritismo and Santeria, which is practiced by members of the Afro-Caribbean diaspora. Dolls are not a widely reported part of these religions, but Eileen Condon, who was the Folk Arts Program Director of the Dutchess County Arts Council, traveled to Puerto Rico and interviewed women who practiced Espiritismo from 2004 to 2007. The doll owners she talked to described how dolls and other objects could be prepared to protect oneself, one's homes, or family, and that dolls can be animated by spirits, with or without preparation, and with God's permission. Another testament to the power of the doll is how frightening they can be. I'm sure you've all seen some kind of possessed doll media at least some point in your life um, with Annabelle and Megan. That recently came out. Apparently he's getting a sequel. So dolls have been a really popular uh, trope in horror movies. And a lot of the times it's because they play on this idea of childhood innocence and uh, subverting that to be horrifying but 
Also, these possessed doll narratives do speak to the origin of dolls as religious tools. So, for example, in the first act of Child's Play, uh, which is a Chucky movie, there is a dying criminal who encants Dambala, a serpent god in Haitian voodoo mythology, in order to transfer his soul into the Chucky doll. Though I feel like I just have to clarify really quickly, the way that Chucky and other Hollywood movies portray voodoo is really offensive. Hollywood makes voodoo out to be sinister, satanic even, and the witch doctors who practice it are all like distrustful villains. Um, Dr. Facilier from The Princess and the Frog easily comes to mind. But in reality, voodoo is like any other religion or spiritual practice in that it's a set of beliefs that are not inherently good or bad. There are also elements of Catholicism that influence the religion, though that's something Hollywood doesn't like to show either. Also, of course, like voodoo dolls, which I have to mention, especially because we're talking about dolls right now. But the real origin of the voodoo doll is the poppet, which is actually used in European witchcraft. Um, Voodoo dolls are not actually related to voodoo. Apparently... The term voodoo doll was invented by an American writer who made up a story about voodoo after hearing that it was witchcraft. The only dolls that are actually used in voodoo are ones on voodoo altars, which are supposed to represent spirits. Sometimes doll horror can also be traced to Christianity. Um, In his essay for Vice, Why Are So Many Horror Films Christian Propaganda? Josiah Hesse argues that horror conveys fundamentally the same message as a regular church sermon that God and Satan are perpetually at war for one's soul. If we take a look at Annabelle, which I mentioned earlier, it's a series or it's a movie in the Conjuring horror series, but the movie revolves around a haunted doll. So in the movie Annabelle, the family that is introduced is a Christian family and their faith is really important for the actual narrative. The writer Gary Dauberman even identifies as Christian himself. So in the movie, the Mullins, which is this family, are guilty of breaking the religious commandment you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. So basically no idolatry, which is one of the Ten Commandments. Yet they worship a doll that they believe to be their daughter, um, thus breaking that commandment. And then by the end of the movie, they are punished for it with their lives. Another reason why dolls are often used in horror movies is honestly just because they kind of look creepy. Psychologist Frank McAndrew explained, we shouldn't be afraid of a little piece of plastic, but it's sending out social signals. They look like people, but aren't people, so we don't know how to respond to it. Just like we don't know how to respond when we don't know whether there is a danger or not. Dolls also invoke the uncanny valley, which is a term that refers to the idea that when a humanoid looks or resembles a human too much, it causes discomfort, unease, or even terror. Because there's still something about them that doesn't feel human. For example, there's a weird speech pattern or strange eye contact or a slightly robotic walk. So it's like they exist between human and non-human. And the interesting thing is that before the 18th and 19th centuries, dolls weren't really real enough to be threatening. Only when they began to look too human did dolls start to become creepy and uncanny. The uncanniness also has to do with the function of dolls themselves. Kids are given dolls as toys and they practice their language and social skills as they play with them. For adults, watching this feels at times like the doll itself is alive, which can be creepy. But let's refocus. Dolls serve as an important social tool and whether creepy or not, they teach kids how to behave in a society through play acting. Their power in shaping children's minds is exactly why representation is such a hot topic when people talk about the doll industry. 
In the 1930s and 40s, child psychologists Kenneth and Mommy Clark studied young children's preferences for light and dark complexion dolls. Black children often choose to play with lighter dolls, suggesting that by the time they had reached nursery school, these kids had already noticed society's racist standards of beauty. A businesswoman and activist named Sarah Lee Creech came to believe that a well-made doll that accurately reflected the beauty of African-American children might help them overcome the self-rejection resulting from what one historian called a corrosive awareness of color. Creech convinced the ideal toy company to manufacture the dolls, which were then put on sale in 1951. However, the Sarah Lee doll never sold in the quantities that Creech had hoped, in part because the vinyl used to make the doll hardened, lost its initial color, and seeped its dyes onto the doll's clothing. Ideal then canceled plans to make other black dolls. It wouldn't be until 1968 that another mass-market black doll would hit the market, Barbie's friend Christy. Since then, doll lineups have become incredibly diverse, especially in recent years, and... Yeah, it definitely sells, which is good news for companies. Mattel reported that in 2020, their second most popular Barbie was the one that came with the wheelchair. But Dr. Tony Sturdivant recreated a small-scale version of the 1930 study in 2019 and actually found that pre-kindergartners she worked with still rejected the black dolls in favor of the white ones. She also noted gender as a persisting problem with doll play. She told Allure, I can say from my experience as a teacher that kids who identify as boys do like playing with dolls, but there's a policing that happens very early on where other kids will say, those are for girls. Yes, representation is important, but just making sure something available isn't going to solve the problem. I mean, I think doll play is a very individual experience, and a lot of the times, the way that children play with dolls just mirror the other societal ideals that are being drilled into their heads by other forces. That doesn't necessarily mean that diverse dolls aren't important for the market, but it just means that there's like other work that has to go into it when it comes to parenting, when it comes to the kinds of uh, social environments kids grow up with, um, the education that's provided by their teachers, etc. As much as we want to blame Mattel for like all the problems that we've had uh, developmentally, I think it definitely goes deeper than that. I'm Evan and I'm 17. Growing up, I felt very guilty for being gravitated to dolls. As someone who identifies as a queer guy, Asian American at that, dolls were one of the only sources of joy in my childhood. I became obsessed with Monster High dolls when I was around six in 2011, and that obsession lasted for three to four years. I think that Monster High dolls were definitely a lot more alternative and spooky looking compared to their blonde-haired, blue-eyed counterparts, but I think that's why so many kids in my generation gravitated to them. I remember that the creator of Monster High, Garrett Sander, was unapologetic in his queerness, which is obviously reflected in the narrative of the whole franchise. There's always themes of marginalization and the embracing of radical diversity that was extremely normalized in the Monster High brand. Although I was gravitated towards the pretty and intricate outfits of the dolls as a child, I still appreciate the whole message that Monster High was pushing. Difference is good, difference is needed. And in parentheses, I love your videos and I've been loving the podcast. I wrote out video essays in my Stanford application and I ended up being accepted, so thanks. Oh my God, first of all, major, major congrats, Evan. That is so crazy, so amazing. I feel like my parents are just dying to adopt you. Um, you're killing it. Oh my gosh, you're going to have the best time. Uh, but 
you know, back to the whole dolls thing with Monster High. I never grew up with Monster High because they came out in 2010, I believe. And at that point, I was no longer playing with dolls. But I had no idea that the creator was queer and it makes total sense. I feel like with certain companies, like with certain franchises, it can come off a little bit, uh, what's the word? Fake? <laughs> It comes off a little disingenuous when companies are, you know, obviously trying to create something that is diverse for the sake of generating profit, you know, but I feel like when a product is actually created by someone who believes in it, it comes off as way more authentic and it makes total sense why it's so beloved. But also, when I was looking at the um, Wikipedia page, I saw that there's a book series about Monster High, and it was written by Lisey Harrison. So if you guys don't know who Lisey Harrison is, she wrote the popular book series, The Click, which is probably the reason for all the bullying that happened in my middle school. I'm not even lying. Like, maybe the book was trying to be satirical, but... All the girls at my school took it very seriously and they just like all pretended that they were like the the alpha girl in the group who was the rudest and most terrible person in the entire book. Her name was Massey and she would always make fun of this girl, Claire, who she would call Claire, um, especially because Claire would wear Keds, which was apparently like lower class people's shoes. The book was very classist. And again, it was, you know, looking back, probably satirical, but everyone in my school took it very seriously. So I would just not make the connection between that terrible book series and um, Monster High, which is apparently very wholesome. So if anyone has read the Monster High books written by Lisey Harrison, please let me know. I'm dying to know whether or not they were good. Prior to 1840, few toys were made on a commercial basis to begin with. Most toys were homemade or produced by small local shops and craftsmen. But during the Industrial Revolution, widespread technological advances spurred the growth of factories producing consumer goods and fueled a boom in toy production. New and progressive ideas about the meaning of childhood also rapidly increased the demand for mass market toys. So one of the types of dolls that we got were paper mache dolls, and they became mass produced around 1820. And they were popular because they were cheap and easy to make. Different factories had their own secret formulas that consisted of some kind of mix of scrap paper, glue, clay, gypsum, chalk, black flour, ash, and some other quote-unquote secret ingredients. These dolls were popular for about 30 more years before the porcelain doll took over. There were also wax dolls, and they came in about three different types. So the first type is the poured wax doll. These were dolls with molded heads of wax. Some of the heads were solid and others were hollow. The poured wax doll was first introduced in the late 1700s, and they were very desirable for their translucence and more realistic resemblance to human skin. The second type is the wax over doll, which is a less expensive doll with a head of composition, paper mache, or other materials that is then dipped or coated in wax. The third type is the reinforced wax doll. Reinforced dolls came out later than the other two. To make one, first a wax doll head was poured and then the inside was reinforced by using either plastic or strips of cloth soaked in composition. This provided a stronger support layer to the wax. However, like the paper mache doll, the wax doll eventually did get pushed out of vogue in the late 19th century due to everyone's it girl, the porcelain doll. So let's talk about her. Let's give her the attention that she deserves, right? 
The first porcelain dolls were made of Chinese porcelain and were called China dolls. The porcelain was glazed to produce a shiny look. Older China dolls had wooden bodies, but from around 1840 to 1880, China was also used to make doll heads, hands, and feet. However, beginning in the 1850s, demand for a more realistic skin tone called for a new technique. France and Germany began manufacturing bisque dolls, which featured unglazed porcelain heads with a matte finish. Unlike the China doll, bisque doll heads were not dipped in glaze before firing, which preserved a smooth skin-like texture. Only the heads were left unglazed, while other parts of the body were made from a variety of other materials to avoid heaviness. The first bisque dolls had molded hair, eyes, and mouths, but later advancements offered a more lifelike quality. Glass eyes that opened and closed, complex wigs made of human or animal hair, and even inset teeth. In keeping with the trends of the Victorian era, many high-quality dolls came with elaborately styled wigs of real hair pinned to a cork pate. Some even had pierced ears or carefully painted feet that featured patterned stockings or trendy boots. The finest porcelain parts were sold separately for home assembly. So, as dolls began to be produced on a larger scale, they also started to represent a lot of societal ideas about uh, gender. In the early 20th century, right around the time that women were increasingly leaving the home and entering the workplace, infant dolls grew in popularity. The first commercially successful infant doll, or Boz Baby, not Boss Baby, Boz Baby, was introduced in 1909 by the doll maker Cameron Reinhardt, based in Waltershausen, Germany. Some of the other popular infant dolls that follow include the Avril Mama doll in 1918, the Bilo Baby in 1922, and the Betsy Wetsy in 1934. The whole point of these dolls was to care for them like they were real babies, thus kind of inducting young girls into the cult of maternity. Betsy Wetsy could even wet herself, which taught girls the valuable lesson in how to change diapers. Moving into the post-war era, when Barbie was introduced in 1959, second-wave feminists criticized Mattel for promoting an unrealistic body ideal and a hyper-consumerist lifestyle. To reframe Barbie into being a positive role model, Mattel gave her myriad career options that deviated from her original fashion model one, which provided girls with alternative aspirations, like president and rocket scientist, though I think those two professions came much later. Yeah, actually her first, like, couple jobs include fashion designer, singer, ballerina, flight attendant, nurse, babysitter, cheerleader, candy striper, drum majorette, um, fashion editor, student teacher. So a lot of very feminine coded jobs, though she was an astronaut in 1965. For boys, action figures were offered as a socially acceptable way to play with dolls, though their macho design has also raised similar concerns about body image. Timothy Baghurst conducted a study in 2006 and found a clear link between the exaggeration of action figures' bodies and a drop in male self-confidence. Bagger's report also noted that the facial expressions of action figures seem to be getting progressively more aggressive and that this, coupled with both an increasingly violent media and unstable hormones caused by steroid injections and overexercise, could be permanently damaging not only the physicality but also the psychology of growing boys. Another doll brand that's been under attack for body image issues was Bratz. Bratz were first launched in 2001, and they were kind of immediately criticized because the girls were very... Their designs looked more sexual, I guess, than 
Barbie. Time columnist Nancy Gibbs wrote in 2006, most critics focus on the clothes, which lean past trendy to trashy. Torn jeans, bare navels, platform shoes, micro skirts with chains. It's easy to imagine that behind those pouting lips lies a pierced tongue. But that's not really the issue. You could strip them naked, re-outfit them from Cinderella Barbie's closet, and still have a problem. It's all in the expression. Heavily made up, they look jaded, bored, if not actually stoned. A father told The New Yorker the same year, The dolls look like streetwalkers. You know, those pumping parties where people go for plastic surgery on the cheap? They look like pumping party victims. However, Dr. Jillian Hernandez, a black and Latina aesthetic scholar, challenged these brats' criticisms, saying, I came to realize that Barbie is also a sexual representation. However, Barbie's body is perceived as acceptable due to her whiteness, while brats is viewed as unacceptable due to their racial difference. Yeah, Bratz definitely had better representation in their lineup than Barbie. The first four that came out, I forget their names. Wait, I think I do remember. It was Jade, Sasha, Chloe, and Yasmin. Is that correct? And in the lineup, I believe Jade, Sasha, and Yasmin are the ones that were people of color, so... There was already more representation from the onset compared to Barbie. I personally was, I was a much bigger fan of Bratz than Barbie. I don't know if I owned that many Barbies, but I owned a lot of Bratz. And every Christmas, that's what I wanted. I wanted more Bratz. Like, I could never have enough. And what I really liked about Bratz is their entire feet came off, which is such a, like a strange detail to want to buy toys based on. But like, Barbie, what always pissed me off was that her little heels would always fall off her shoes because they couldn't adhere properly. Whereas Bratz, their entire shoe would just pop off their ankle. So like the shoe also was the foot. And because of that, I never lost the shoes. The one downside to that is like, if the Bratz doll came with open toe shoes, then the shoe would also contain like skin color. And if you had Bratz dolls of different skin tones, you couldn't like interchange those particular shoes between them, which also annoyed me because I was really trying to like come up with different outfits and I found that very limiting. But other than that, Bratz forever, Bratz always, and I think the true fashion girlies, we love Bratz. Or maybe I'm just projecting. So Bratz, Barbies, action figures, Monster High, Polly Pocket, infant dolls, like all these toys, do implicitly carry some kind of meaning um, about Western society values, right? Like, you can stretch it as much as you want. But American Girl dolls, American Girl dolls explicitly convey narratives about Western history and culture and society. And yeah, let's talk about American Girl dolls for a second. American Girl originally produced six childlike dolls that represent different historical eras and ethnic groups that make up America. While you could also buy numerous outfits for them, what made the dolls really special was not actually the fashion, but their corresponding books that would give insight on the environments they grew up in, as well as their own personal fictional stories. For a lot of young girls, including myself, these books were probably our first forays into a now long-standing interest in American history. Also, these dolls were like over $100 per doll, and they were big dolls, so it was kind of like a social flex if you had one or more. I never got my own new American Girl doll. I got a hand-me-down from my cousin, but I remember going to my friend's house and she literally had like seven American Girl dolls. As a young child, I don't think I really put together that her parents were loaded until I saw that row of American Girls. <laughs> but these dolls were also imperfect because 
I feel like when you try to condense an entire period of history into the story of one doll, it's going to lead to an oversimplification and overgeneralization of that era, right? As Abby Schneider writes for the Michigan Daily, these dolls of color cannot begin to embody the complex experiences of the various races and ethnicities they attempt to represent. American girls aren't the only dolls to convey ethnic cultures, though. Barbie's Dolls of the World line are a collection of 91 dolls that represent different countries and are dressed in cultural garb. And on a less capitalistic level, folk dolls around the world have also been used to preserve historical cultural dress. HelloFresh is more than just delicious dinners. Not only can you take your pick from 40 weekly recipes, but you can choose from over 100 items to round out your order, from snacks and easy lunches to desserts and pantry necessities. Everything arrives in one box on the delivery day that you choose. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, and they care about quality. That's why their seasonal ingredients are picked at peak ripeness and travel from the farm to your home in less than seven days so you know that they're fresh. HelloFresh has been a major time saver in my day because, you know, I'm like working, I'm going to school, and there are so many times when I'm like, I just don't have the energy to look up a recipe, to go grocery shopping, and then if the grocery store doesn't have that item, to go to another grocery store and try to find it and do this whole like charade every single day. It's just too much. And I have just really appreciated the fact that HelloFresh will pre-proportion ingredients. You have the recipe, it comes in the box, and also like all the recipes I've received have not taken that much time at all to make, so it's just been great. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 16Mina and use code 16Mina for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 16Mina and use 16Mina for 16 free meals plus free shipping. I absolutely loved Bratz dolls. Like, I, before I probably would have said, like, oh, they were a better representation. Like, they just had features that I resonated with. But really, they were just so cunty. And I think whatever trait that I had as a child that, like, made me eat up shows like the grassy and Skins and Jersey Shore is like the reason that I loved Brat so much, just because I needed to reenact like the teen drama, like storylines that I was like creating as a child and the Barbies just couldn't do that for me. I needed like the cuntiness of the Brat so that I could like recreate these chaotic storylines. Oh my God, I so agree. Um. You know, like, I I feel like I like to think that the reason I liked Bratz was because of the clothing options and the removable feet, but also, like, their design was just more interesting. Like, it was cuntier. And I also was, like, a major fan of these, you know, very dramatic shows. Like, I loved Degrassi, though. I watched it behind my parents' back. Parents, I know you're listening to this. I'm sorry. Um... <laughs> and I was never into the Jersey Shore, but, you know, I, w- I was into this, like, genre of, like, dramatic reality TV. And I definitely created, like, the weirdest storylines for my dolls. But also, you know, I don't know if there's, like, some kind of gene, like, left-handedness or right-handedness that makes one gravitate towards brats and someone gra- to gravitate towards Barbie, because I don't know if you've seen that series on YouTube called The Most Popular Girls in School. This was a major series when I was in high school, and everyone was, like, talking about it on Tumblr. It, like, went semi-viral, though. I think when I looked back 
for an episode. It only had like a million views or something. I don't know. So it, it very much existed in within my niche environment. But um, the most popular girls in school, honestly, a lot of the jokes are politically incorrect. But the premise was actually really funny because it was like this group of friends who decided to create like a Degrassi Gossip Girl-esque type of show using Barbie dolls and it was like stop motion. I don't know. You'll have to watch it again. Like I don't really remember the jokes that were in it, but I do remember them being offensive. And so uh, proceed with caution. But just like as an example of just, you know, people using these dolls to construct crazy circumstances. And, you know, I, I'm sure part of the success for this YouTube show was because like the humor aligned with like 2012 humor but also because it taps into this you know nostalgic um sense of play that we all have where we all did construct or most of us I should say did construct our own storylines that made the existence of these dolls so much deeper than you know what they actually were so what's the relationship between dolls and fashion well, because dolls are basically like miniaturized versions of people, it makes them sort of the perfect way to disseminate fashion trends. So I talked a little bit about this in my magazine video that I just put out recently, but Pandora dolls were actually the earliest version of fashion dolls. Also, the term fashion doll is a little bit misleading because dolls are normally associated with children as toys, but fashion dolls are like little mannequins. If you're on the historical fashion side of Pinterest, you've probably come across fashion plates way more often than you've seen Pandoras. And fashion plates were popular, but the problem with fashion plates is that they were flat illustrations, whereas Pandoras were like 3D things. Pandoras, unlike fashion plates, allowed people to see what clothes would actually look like on a body. Clothes were expensive back then, and the ready-to-wear market didn't really boom until the Industrial Revolution or the late 19th century. If you were going to put that much money into a new dress, you wanted to know what it would look like on your body. It's the same kind of mindset that we have now when we try clothes on in a store. It's one thing to look at pictures of clothes on an online store, and it's another thing entirely to actually go and try things on before you buy them. Paper dolls were also a tool for marketing. The exact origin date of them is unknown, but historians have discovered the first Western paper dolls in 18th century Paris during Louis XV's reign, but they've also found paper dolls traced all the way back to 9th century Japan. Paper dolls are two-dimensional figures, and they could represent a vast variety of subjects, such as people, animals, or object. And they were also mostly used as toys for both adults and children. However, early dressmakers also used a version of a paper doll, 8 inches tall, with joints made of thread, to design and model clothing, but many of these dolls had permanently printed costumes. Because of how fast you could print paper, paper dolls became a favorite medium for spreading information about fashion trends in the early 19th century. One of the discovered paper dolls of the era were Anne Sander Wilson's 1832 collection because they came with a floating woman's head that you could attach to a number of different outfits. Available clothing that she drew ranged from fashionable dress to working clothes. The paper dolls also came alongside a manuscript called The History of Miss Wildfire, which told Miss Wildfire's story. She used to dress with fancy clothes, then she descended into poverty after the death of her father and was forced to earn her keep as a lace maker. Eventually, she managed to redeem herself with marriage and conversion to Quakerism. Moving on to the 20th century, 
after World War II, France's fashion industry was basically moot. And that's because of the war. And, you know, because like the war was fought in Europe, a lot of things were destroyed and it was hard to build back any industry. And especially because fashion shows were so expensive to put on, like the whole production of them, uh, fashion designers in France were struggling with figuring out how to rebuild their stores and remarket their clothes again. To celebrate the end of the war and the return of French fashion, Robert Ritchie, the son of Nina Ritchie, had the idea to present a miniature fashion exhibit, which could be made thriftily with limited resources. They called this exhibit Théâtre de la Mode, and it opened on the Louvre on March 28, 1945. They recruited 15 other top designers alongside Nina, including Cristobal Balenciaga, Pierre Balmain, Lucien Lelong, Elsa Schiaparelli, and Hermès to create 237 figurines wearing their creations. The mannequins were 27.5 inches tall and were presented in 15 sets built by artists like Christian Berard and Jean Cocteau. Jewelers Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpels contributed miniature necklaces and accessories. As Susan Train, Vogue's former Paris bureau chief, wrote in an introduction for the book Théâtre de la Mode, Fashion Dolls, The Survival of Haute Couture, Born at a moment in history and under circumstances that were more than difficult, but in an elan of solidarity and hope for the future, the dolls stood also for the creative ability, skills, and pride in the perfection of detail of the artisans, couturiers, and artists of France. They are, in fact, like the phoenix, a symbol of life. So in the post-war era, we also got a lot of fashion dolls that were being marketed to children, such as Barbie and Sissy. Sissy was released in 1955 by doll maker Madame Alexander. Sissy was revolutionary. She was 21 inches tall and full-figured. Previously, most dolls were made in the likeness of a child, such as Betsy McCall, Ginny, and many others. The idea of creating a more mature doll for children was to create this like big sister character that would guide these children through their teenage years. Barbie was first released in 1959, as I said, by Mattel, and her first look was a striped swimsuit. Although Barbie was targeted to children, the doll's initial inspiration was taken from the German Build Lily doll, a German call girl cartoon character who was marketed to adult men. On the suggestive elements carried over from Build Lily to Barbie, creator Ruth Handler said, Every little girl needed a doll through which to project herself into her dream of her future. If she was going to do role-playing of what she would be like when she was 16 or 17, it was a little stupid to play with a doll that had a flat chest. So I gave it beautiful breasts. I just want to raise a point and say, Ruth, that some people, some adults, some fully grown adults have flat chests um, their entire lives. So... However, the close association between dolls and fashion did lead a lot of second-wave feminists to get really pissed off, <laughs> to say the least. Many feminists felt that companies that were producing these dolls, which inevitably had such a significant influence on the development of young girls, should create dolls that had more meaningful aspirations than just getting pink cars and more clothes. In the 90s, actually, the Simpsons episode Lisa versus Malibu Stacy sees the young feminist character appalled by the doll's catchphrases like, thinking too much gives you wrinkles, and don't ask me, I'm just a girl. The conflict of this episode was inspired by Mattel's controversial Teen Talk Barbie, which was released in 1992, which infamously spoke phrases like, I love shopping and math class is tough. 
Aqua also released their hit single Barbie Girl in 1997, characterizing Barbie as dumb, materialistic, and less than wholesome to say the least. However, Billboard's Larry Flick detected a feminist angle in his review of the song, saying, at the same time, she effectively rants about the inherent misogyny of Barbie with a subversive hand. I don't know, but I do know that Mattel did not like Barbie Girl, and I think it's so funny that, like, when Greta Gerwig's Barbie trailer came out, a bunch of people were like, oh my god, this was such a missed opportunity to use, like, the Barbie Girl song for the film's trailer, and I think we have to remember that Mattel signed off on this project, so no, I don't think that they would have been okay with Barbie Girl <laughs> being used in their marketing. In fact, Mattel actually sued Aqua's label and distributor for copyright infringement, claiming that the song contained lyrics that associate sexual and other unsavory themes with Mattel's Barbie products. And that happened in September 1997. Hi, Rena. Um, my favorite doll growing up was the Kirsten, Kirsten American Girl doll. I got one from my grandma when she was dying of dementia. <laughs> That's so funny. She like had sewed all these clothes for her, and I had I got the book as well. And I just remember it was really dark for a children's book. Like her friend died from cholera. Maybe not in her arms, but I remember it was very like detailed. But that's kind of beside the point. But anyway, she was my favorite doll, and I took her hair out of her braids, and I tried brushing it, and then it got really frizzy and matted, and then I could never get it back to normal. And one time, my sister and I were fighting over her, and my sister had one leg and I had the other, and we were both tugging, and um, her leg broke off. And the momentum from that sort of catapulted her out of both of our hands and she went clattering down the stairs and hit her little plastic doll head really hard on the wood. And after that, her eye was never, like, it wouldn't stay open the way it was meant to, so she sort of had, like, a one eye permanently shut. Yeah, but she was great. Uh, bye. <laughs> oh my god. Sorry, I, it's just so funny the way that you're describing it, like the, the destruction of this doll, but also internally I'm dying because these dolls were so expensive. I, I'm glad that you still got use out of her, even, you know, with her, her eye problem, her eye twitching problem. <laughs> I actually have a similar story, um, not with an American Girl doll, but I had this infant doll that... I think I had when I was like really young because I definitely didn't remember playing with infant dolls when I got to elementary school. So I think I had this doll when I was like five or whatever, but I took her to a pool and for some reason, like the water was not <laughs> working out for my doll and her eyes just like fell out. And yeah, like she just didn't have eyeballs anymore. But the weird thing is, I loved her more because of this uh, problem because I think at the time I still thought that toys were like somewhat sentient because I watched Toy Story <laughs> and so I felt 
very bad that I was the reason for this doll's issues. And therefore, I now had a bigger responsibility to continue playing with her and making her life better despite her blindness. <laughs> and it actually like, it got me into this whole ethical conundrum when I was like four years old because I was like, I don't really want to play with her anymore. But I was like, I have to play with her because I made her this way. Because without me, she could have had such a better life <laughs> um, being played with by someone else. So yeah. <laughs> In fashion runways all around the world, dolls have been significantly referenced by a lot of designers. For example, Mason Martin Margiela's Fall Winter 1994 collection, titled A Doll's Wardrobe, took direct inspiration from clothing produced for dolls. Margiela enlarged the scale of a 1960s and 70s doll's wardrobe, and so the collection featured oversized fixtures like zips and clasps, large woolen knitwear, and giant pockets on jeans. Loose threads were often left exposed, making the physical construction of the garment an integral part of its overall aesthetic. Jeremy Scott also evoked paper dolls for Moschino's spring-summer 2017 runway, playing, as always, with themes of nostalgia, consumerism, and kitsch. Joanna Elizabeth writes about the collection, it's all about optical illusions, as dresses, two pieces, and gowns look like cardboard cutouts. He also brought a call to Valley of the Dolls with pill prints and 60s-inspired silhouettes. In the same year, for their 2017 fall show, Victor and Rolf dressed models as life-size dolls with giant heads. The reason behind it? Victor and Rolf described the dolls as the brand's mascots, rooting for a world that is creative, diverse, and eco-conscious. We thought reality is so weird at the moment, why not show the surreal side of reality? Designers have also designed collections for dolls specifically, the ones that kids play with. The first fashion designer to collaborate with Barbie was Oscar De La Renta. He started working with Mattel in the mid-1980s, creating stylish outfits and sparkling gowns for Barbie. These first creations were sold separately from the dolls as part of the Barbie fashions line. In 1998, the first Oscar De La Renta doll was released featuring Barbie in an elegant gold dress. But arguably the most popular Barbie designer collaborations are the Bob Mackie creations. Bob Mackie was a major 90s designer. I believe Fran Fine wears a lot of different dresses that are Bob Mackie in The Nanny. And starting in 1990, Bob Mackie partnered with Mattel to create Barbie couture gowns. His designs were incredibly elaborate, featuring headpieces, Swarovski crystals, and hand-sewn sequins. In total, he and Mattel collaborated on over 20 Barbie dolls. Mattel has continued to collaborate with designers in recent years. In 2015, they teamed up with Moschino to create a doll collection that matched the brand's existing collection for women. On the flip side, in January 2022, Balmain collaborated with Barbie for the second time to create a women's clothing line inspired by the dolls. While definitely the doll with the most designer collaborations under its belt, Barbie is not the only one to dip a toe into the fashion industry. Last year, Moa Lola released a collaboration with Bratz, designing limited edition clothing and accessories for select dolls. Creative director Moa Lola Ogunlesi tells Hype Bay, Growing up as a tomboy in Lagos, Nigeria, I have always been fascinated by Bratz dolls with their extreme beauty, looks, and out-of-this-world fashion. This collaboration with the brand gave me the opportunity to re-examine the ideals of beauty and femininity and how I could bring Bratz into my world and make them reflect my own ideas of beauty. That's why I'm so excited to work with MGA and the Bratz team in designing and offering these dolls. 
It's unsurprising that a lot of designers probably grew up playing with dolls or even designing outfits for them. But also on a business front, it's just like a good strategy overall to introduce kids to a specific designer because even though these children don't have the spending power to buy a Balmain dress, you're introducing what Balmain is so that when they do grow up, they recognize that name and they're like, oh, I really love the little outfits that my Barbie wore. And maybe they're then more inclined to purchase something from Balmain rather than from a brand that hasn't worked with Barbie before. Okay, actually, I do need to issue a correction here because I posted, you know, this on my YouTube and people commented. Some people were like, oh, actually, the designer collaborations are very, very expensive. So um, you can't actually play with them. They're like not made for kids. <laughs> so I'm not like in the doll collecting industry so i'm not really exactly sure what dolls are made for kids and what dolls aren't i do know that the moa lola ones though are like around 50 dollars, which i feel like is not super unreasonable considering american girl dolls are sold to kids and they're like a hundred dollars also the um met gala moschino barbie was 75 dollars. so yeah i don't actually know but I guess like even for adults when a brand collaborates with a toy that is marketed for adults then um, it also like introduces this brand to adults who uh, may or may not be like uh, regular consumers of said brand. So there's a few subcultures I want to talk about briefly because they do relate to dolls and I thought that they would be interesting. Um, but the first is the ball jointed doll fandom. So ball jointed dolls or BJDs for short are collectible dolls that have ball and socket joints that are strung with elastic which allows them an exceptionally wide range of lifelike movement. The style was first inspired by Hans Bellmer's German ball jointed dolls of the 1930s and Bellmer was an artist who created dolls with ball joints and used them in photography and other kinds of surrealist work. Japanese artists who were influenced by Bellmer constructed their own dolls which were made of bisque. As works of art, these dolls were not meant for play in the same way that Barbie and Bratz are and each doll can cost up to several thousand dollars, even several hundred thousand dollars for older collectible dolls from famous artists. However, so BJDs became commercial and more affordable in 1999, affordable as in starting price of around $450, when the Japanese company Volks created their Super Dolphy line of dolls. And once they became commercial, that's kind of when this like fandom really rose up. So these dolls, these commercial dolls were made of resin, strung with elastic, and came with garage kits, which were basically kits of blank unassembled parts that the customer could use for customization. So the customization was actually pretty insane. Um, while other dolls' customization is limited to usually clothes and sometimes hair, BJDs came in parts. So you could customize everything from waist and bust to eyes and ears. Um, you could swap out different parts and you could even combine different parts from different manufacturers or even get ones that are custom made. Dolls are often sold blank, so the customer can also either paint the doll themselves or commission an artist to paint the doll for them. The BJD fandom is still a pretty active subculture in Asia. Volks even organizes dolls party conventions in Japan throughout the year and fans organize their own BJD meetups and events. BJD has also bled into other subcultures as well. For instance, these dolls tend to be associated with the gothic Lolita and Lolita fashion subcultures in Japan. Volks actually has a history of collaborating with Lolita fashion designers going back to 2002 when they released limited edition Super Dolphy with clothes designed by Baby the Starshine Bright, Black Peace Now, and Atelier Pierrot. 
There's also a subculture of people who dress up as the dolls themselves, doing makeup inspired by BJD or even going as far as wearing doll masks. These people who wear masks are called dollars. One of the most popular projects that brought mainstream awareness to dollars was Lulu Hashimoto. So this was a project created by Japanese fashion designer Hitomi Komaki. The idea is that Lulu is half person, half doll. The model wears an elaborate full body suit with a detailed mask, a wig, and stockings. The stockings have ball jointed details that make the model look more like a BJD. Lulu is a character that has her own fictional background story. She's kind of like a little Michaela, if I'm gonna be honest. Like, you know, she does exist in like life form because models are literally wearing her, but in terms of like being an influencer, she's kind of made up, right? So, Hitomi Kamaki doesn't actually wear the costume herself. She has different models wearing the costume, so you never know who's like underneath the the face of Lulu. However, um, sad to say, Lulu Hashimoto ceased as a project in 2021 because the company they were working with to produce the masks, Nukopan, um, there was a person in the company who was stalking and sexually harassing the models, so uh, they terminated the project because of that. Lulu Hashimoto, though, is sometimes categorized under the living doll subculture, which is the second subculture I want to talk about for a bit. I am honestly sure that most of you have seen something about the living doll culture. Um, There's like this really popular woman. Her name is Valeria Lukianova, and she's often referred to by the Daily Mail and other kind of like tabloidy magazines as the human Barbie. And there's also like the human Ken. And it's these people who get a lot of plastic surgery to almost look exactly like a doll. And, you know, technically to be a living doll, you can just buy bodysuits and wear masks and makeup in the similar way that um, Lulu Hashimoto exists. But yeah, the ones that go viral tend to be the ones that uh, really dedicate themselves with a plastic surgery. Going back to Valeria, because she is the most popular one, she's definitely a very questionable woman. And, you know, sometimes you don't want, you don't know if she's like portraying a character or if she's literally just that crazy uh for a while she said that she was on a breatharian diet which i've talked about in a previous video but breatharians claim to subsist on like light and air they claim to not eat any food so basically they claim to photosynthesize which is what she said she was doing um she also says she doesn't believe in race mixing which is probably even worse a statement to make than saying that you photosynthesize like she has literally said that ethnicities mixing leads to degeneration so i don't know that seems a little fascist to me Regarding the way that she looks, because she does have a very, very tiny waist and a really big bust, and also like just the way that her face looks, um, she has claimed that it's all makeup and she's denied fully having plastic surgery aside from a boob job, but I'm honestly like, you have to look at photos of her because I, I don't believe it. And, you know, as I said, there is that human Ken doll. His name is Justin Jedlicka, but he actually has been open about plastic surgery. And he has said that he spent over $800,000 on around 780 cosmetic procedures to get his face essentially looking like handsome Squidward. There's another living doll. Her name is Blondie Bennett, and she's also invested in plastic surgery. She's spent the low cost of 
£25,000 on five different boob jobs to get her to a size 32 double J. She also claims to go to weekly hypnotherapy sessions to make herself brainless um, as to fully dedicate herself to her doll transformation. So, um, <laughs> I do just want to say though that these examples are the ones that tend to go viral because they are very extreme and they're, you know, they're just like so out there that people love to write about them. But there are people who just participate in the living doll subculture who don't go so far as to like completely modify their bodies with plastic surgery and spend like millions of dollars doing that or like going to lobotomizing sessions. Um, there are people who just do it like as a form of fun and entertainment and you know, in the case of Lulu Hashimoto, that was literally an art project. So I don't want to say that this entire subculture is like messed up because I think it really is like just a couple different people who are heavily talked about on the internet. Though I also think that these people do suffer from body dysmorphia, I, I want to say. And the whole doll thing is less about having a caricature and having like a fun time and more because you're striving for this idea of bodily perfection that is unhealthy. But anyways, these are just like some subcultures that I wanted to mention. I now want to go back into the mainstream with American Girl Dolls because I feel like American Girl Doll memes in particular have really taken over the internet lately. So if you haven't seen any of these American Girl Doll memes, there's just like a lot of popular meme pages that have been created that are inspired specifically by American Girl. And a lot of them create these images that are both funny and also like political, which is funny in and of itself. But um, for example, like this one meme is a doll with the phrase, cancel them loans Biden overlaid. What is the reason for this particular meme format or this like interest in American Girl doll memes? The owner of the Instagram account, Click Clitridge, explains, the American Girl books have always explored identity and what it means to be an American. As a nation, there are different periods where we've had to grapple with American identity and what that means for us. That the past five years have been a time that Americans have been put through a lot of stress and had to redefine our thoughts about ourselves. There's also this popular specific meme template, we need an American girl who, followed by something relatable yet niche, like, we need an American girl doll who chewed on her Polly Pocket clothes. <laughs> Research historian Raquel Gonzalez considers why American girls have made a comeback among adults, theorizing how doll play shapes identity formation. She writes, the we need an American girl doll who meme leans towards individuality too. This personalization also served as a primary selling point for Pleasant Company as their catalogs encouraged young consumers to dress up and role play as their doll of choice. And finally, back to Barbie or Greta Gerwig's Barbie, which has been the latest catalyst for uh, fashion doll interest or doll interest in general. I feel like Greta Gerwig's Barbie has simultaneously pulled in people who have been staunchly like anti-doll and who think that this movie is going to be actually very cynical and satirical about the entire doll industry and people who love dolls and who specifically like love Barbie and they feel like this movie is bringing back nostalgia. And I think that's really interesting. I think Greta Gerwig has done a really good job and particularly like the marketing team for this movie has done a really fantastic job in generating public interest in it. But I also think it's just like a lot of things have come together. For instance, um, 
Greta Gerwig is a very accomplished director. The cast is absolutely stacked. Um, we've never had a Barbie live action movie before, despite Barbie being such a huge phenomenon. But I think what definitely has created the hype around Barbie is the mystique around it. Like no one really knows what it's about, but all the promotional material that's come out so far has been leaning on like kind of ironic, self-aware humor. For instance, the uh, promotional poster for Michael Sarah's character, he plays Alan and the tagline for his poster is there's only one Alan and that refers to how over the years Barbie and Ken have been reinterpreted so many times but they only created one Alan doll and so that's just an example of a self-aware joke that they're playing on the audience. And then there's also my favorite line in the new trailer that just dropped a couple months ago. <laughs> I thought I might stay over tonight. To do what? I'm actually not sure. Whether you wanna get more fit, be a better parent, or get more done at work, there is one thing that will help, and that's better sleep. With Miracle Made Sheets, you can tap into the power of self-cooling temperature regulation, which has been shown to improve deep sleep quality by over 20%. Miracle uses silver-infused fabrics, originally inspired by NASA, so their sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long. The silver also prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets, which means they're also better for your skin. On top of that, they are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Go to trymiracle.com slash Mina to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And with Father's Day right around the corner, this is the perfect way to give someone you love the gift of better and more luxurious sleep. Save over 40% and be sure to use my promo code Mina at checkout to save even more and get three free towels. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash Mina and use the code Mina to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash Mina to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. And maybe I'm biased as someone who did grow up with dolls and who really loved playing with dolls. I loved dolls, but I also loved to read and I also loved Pokemon. I wanted to say video games, but that's a lie. I didn't love video games. I only loved Pokemon. And therefore, I was a girl of multifaceted interest. And no, I did not like sports. It's something I will never like in my life. But I think I turned out okay. And I understand a lot of people who are anti-doll and who think it's just like a frivolous like little girl interest because I do think there's some things that I've probably internalized from growing up with dolls. Like, you know, my love for fashion, but particularly on consuming fashion, probably has to do with how I loved styling those dolls and how I loved purchasing new clothes for them. So I think that's definitely a downside, but I also think that it's important to recognize the impact that dolls have had on the culture. And regardless of whether you like them or not, you have to at least admit that they've really shaped the minds of so many people and they still continue to this day play a very large influence in the fashion industry. And that's my plug for doll-themed Met Gala. Hi, I'm Jillian Hernandez. I am an associate professor in gender, women's, and sexuality studies at the University of Florida. And I research gender and sexual politics in visual art and popular culture. So I have been referring a lot to your work. <laughs> to inform Yay. my video 
and um, specifically your article, Miss You Look Like a Bratz Doll. And I was wondering what got you interested in looking at brats and dolls in general, and especially how they relate to um, young black and brown girls. Yeah, the story for me really starts in elementary school. So I had a working class family who uh, sacrificed a lot to send me to private school. And I remember that a big thing for me was doing well in school so that I could get a new Barbie. This was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And there was a way in which like, I had this intense connection to this doll as like, a symbol of a certain kind of, I guess, personal achievement. But it was also just this item that I really had a hunger to consume. Um, and so I was never satisfied, you know, I wanted all the Barbies, I had specialty Barbies. And so for me, it really begins with this like really intimate connection I had with Barbie dolls. That was very much fomented by my mom. And I think on my mother's side, I think Barbies signified this like, this form of consumption that I think for my mother meant that she could provide something for me that meant something in terms of being American, that meant something in terms of being middle class, even though you were working class, like if you consume this doll, you could perform this, this sort of class status. So Barbie played a huge role in my life. And then when I had my daughter, I had her when I was young, I had her when I was 20, you know, I would give her dolls. And I remember um, she wanted Bratz dolls and I would not allow her to play with them because I had this really internalized idea of like respectability politics that now I completely do not agree with. But at that time, it was like, you know, for me, it was like, oh, Barbie symbolizes, you know, this kind of respectable girlhood and brats, um, you know, brats are, they didn't seem appropriate to me. And then I began to write about brats dolls when I was compared to one, when a student I was working with said that I look like a brats doll. Um, around the same time, my daughter wanted them, <laughs> which was funny. It was very funny. Um, and so it really made me realize that like, even if I thought I was very different from whatever type of like working class girl of color brats were, my body nevertheless gets read, could be read as such anyway. And it really made me realize how I had internalized respectability politics as a as a young woman of color and the ways in which like my mom policed the way I dressed and policed, you know, where I went and what I did. And brat stalls in some ways, I think, symbolize a girlhood of color that is very confident, that is very free, that is that is sexual in some ways. And I think girls do have sexuality. I don't think we like to talk about that, but I think they do. And so, um, you know, I write about this moment of being compared to a brat stall as this moment in which I became really aware of how women of color can sort of internalize these respectability politics. And of course, since then, I totally bought brat stalls for my daughter. <laughs> I would buy, I ended up buying them for myself. Um, I even have like a brat stall avatar that I use in the, in like my link tree and on my website. Um <laughs> So um, all that to say, I embraced it now, (laughs) totally embraced it. It's totally fine because I realized that they are important for girls of color. I think it was a doll that um, spoke to their aesthetic world. Do you find that in like a working class black and brown community, girls tend to still gravitate towards brats or is there 
still like a group of them who side with Barbie or I don't know. There's so many dolls now. Yeah, for sure. I think we have progressed because at least like the young people that I, you know, that are my students now in the university, they don't have that like, you know, internal conflict around, you know, Bratz versus Barbie. And I think Barbie is irrelevant to many of them, actually. Um, so they love Bratz. They wax nostalgic on Bratz all the time. They they come to class with like their Hot Topic issued Bratz doll merch or like, you know, water bottles or whatever. So they're, they're in this like mode of nostalgia. But I think it's because of the ways in which like, you know, women of color in popular culture over the last decade have really been pushing against respectability politics, right? And sort of entering the public sphere on their own terms, not feeling like they have to hide their accents or their sexuality in order to be accepted. So um, I'm not seeing that conflict anymore. I think in some ways the there's room for them to sort of embrace that. Right. Do you still think that there is different messaging that's relayed from Barbie and from Bratz. Like, I feel like when I looked at dolls, like one of the major, the blanket statements was like, these dolls, they promote a certain standard of beauty. They promote consumerism. Um, But are there specificities that differentiate the way that Barbie speaks to girls and the way that Bratz speaks to girls, like aside from just um, representation? Right. Yeah, that's such an important question. I mean, I think both dolls speak to girls in different ways. But I also think it's important to talk about the ways in which dolls are open ended, even as even as we may think that they're very scripted. And you know, back in the day, there was a popular feminist discourse that was very anti Barbie. Mm -hmm. And in the early 2000s, there was a a feminist discourse that I was a part of that was very anti Bratz. And so I think there's this way in which like, feminists have viewed dolls as dangerous for girls because of these certain ideas of gender um, ideals that they communicate. But a lot of anthropologists, so like there's this really great anthropologist, Elizabeth Chin, who did um, work with young African-American children, um, where she really paid attention to how they engage with dolls and learned that many children are not necessarily interested in dolls that necessarily look like them. Like they can take they can take a doll that looks different than them and sort of bring it into their world. So she talks about how um, these young African-American children she worked with, they didn't have black dolls available to them, but they would like give their Barbies like cornrows and like do these things that like brought the doll into their world, right? And so I think it's really important to realize that like, even as these dolls are marketed in very particular ways, children are really creative with how they engage with material culture. And so dolls can be queered, right? They can be transformed in so many different ways. And like, you know, researchers have also talked about how like Barbies, even as they have this like very like heteronormative um, type of story to them, you know, people, children like use them in so many queer ways. Like they have their Barbies make out or there's like Barbie (laughs) orgies, you know, like they do crazy stuff with these dolls, right? So I think there's so much panic around dolls because of course it has to do with children um and in and in u.s culture like we don't talk to children about gender we don't talk to children about sexuality in any productive way and so dolls are there often as 
a safe site for experimentation, either aesthetic experimentation or sexual experimentation, right? Or gender experimentation. So I think there's often a lot of panic around dolls. Um, and I think we can critique the ways in which, you know, there's things to critique always, of course, but in, in lived experience, I think dolls can be used to really interesting ways by children. Right. I definitely And by older people. Yeah. <laughs> have you met a lot of yeah. people in your work who have brought dolls into their adulthood? And is the, the way that they interact with the dolls different than when they were children? That's such a good question. Um, I think I had I had a student recently talk to me about how she recently went back to like playing with her dolls intentionally. Like mm -hmm. there was this way in which I think like she felt like she she's a graduate student. So she was really feeling like like real, real adulthood onset. <laughs> and it was like playing with this doll again or bringing the doll back into, you know, um, her life in a sort of regular way was a way to sort of keep that part alive. And so I just this past semester that ended, I taught a critical girlhood studies class. And so like we talked a lot about dolls. Um, and so the student was in that class and talked about that. Um, you know, so I do think that older women, you know, they collect dolls. I still collect dolls sometimes. Um, I still have my collection of dolls. And I don't think I think I'll always sort of treasure them because we do have this really strong, sometimes like affective connection with them. Do you collect any other dolls other than Bratz and Barbie? Oh my God. I collect like random dolls that I'll find like <laughs> at thrift stores and stuff. Um, and sometimes I'm gifted dolls. So I have like these little raggedy, like sometimes I'll find like cute little goth looking dolls or like, I still have a pull towards dolls, you know? And it's yeah. funny because sometimes they get framed as like spooky and weird. Like there is something... <laughs> about them you know as sort of like human-like figures oh my god actually speaking of like I'll show you um my daughter recently got me a doll um I oh another doll I was obsessed with is like my Betty Boop. oh my god like, <laughs> she's here she's on point and like that's another you know that's another figure or doll that also right is like mm -mm -mm, not good but like right. you know women of color love Betty Boop like we just we just love her right <laughs> like she's a moment in right. so many ways like she has her garter bell on <laughs> she has her hoops on so um no I I love Betty Boop so yeah Betty Boop was huge and I I still will collect some Betty Boop things if I if I find them and if they're cute, I'll get some Betty Boop stuff. That's so great. I, I'm a huge fan of Betty Boop too because yeah. I, have like that, I have a giant head. And so I really felt represented. Love it. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. Like Betty Boop is so like racially ambiguous and not at the same time. Right. Like she's a really and I think even the origin story of Betty Boop is like really interesting because some folks are like, oh, she was based on an African-American woman, but it turns out like that's not really true. But even the fact that there's so much about that is super right. interesting. So yeah, I find Betty Boop to be, uh, that's another instance, right? Like I wouldn't want someone to feel sorry for me. Like, oh, you're a Latina. And like the only dolls you could like were like Barbie and Betty Boop. But it's like, I was cool with it. Like I didn't have a struggle around it, you know, like right. I really didn't. I did I not. I do 
feel like people tend to ascribe meaning to a lot of kids, like decisions and how they play. And I think it's like, at least it makes me feel more in control of what like I did as a child to be able to rationalize and be like, well, I picked this doll because I wanted to aspire to have this kind of lifestyle. But right looking back, I'm like, I actually have no idea why I picked certain dolls. Like I, I liked the way like I dressed this one. I feel like I created different personalities for some of them. And that kind of all went into it. Um, so yeah. I have another question though. Yeah. I feel like well, I, I opened up a hotline where people called in and they told me what their favorite doll was growing up. And I got <laughs> I got an overwhelming responses for Barbie and Bratz and um, American Girl, which is and Monster High, which I feel like is, uh, you know, I, I could have predicted that. But is there a reason why some of these doll lines tend to appeal to more people and some of them get kind of forgotten? Like, I remember my scene which I think Mattel. Oh yeah. But then they got discontinued Mm -hmm. and I don't know. It was like, it's, it's kind of weird how some of them continue on into the culture and some of them just taper off. Yeah. I think, I mean, one is obviously marketing power and capital, right? There's so many ways in which these, these trademarks are, they just really establish like a foothold and it becomes very difficult to dislodge them. I think with my scene, I remember my scene, but I, I feel like my scene was sort of late to the game. I think my scene like saw what Bratz was doing. It was like, wait a minute, we can be brownish too, you know? <laughs> and so it was like their attempt to, to be brownish. Um, but I think it just goes to show you like the ways in which the market for children's products like is, is limiting in terms of like how difficult it even would be for like indie brands indie doll companies to even be accessible to a wide public right and so even like as I've raised my children finding them dolls that were alternative it's interesting like in many instances did not necessarily provide me with more ethnic representation it would often be like a very hippie-esque bohemian like natural organic doll that's like still white just in a different way you know Mm -hmm. so like there's this way in which um even in alternative toy markets, um, there's sort of a lack of diversity. So I think a lot of the lack of options is just the dominance, the dominance right. that these companies have and like childhood being such an intense site of consumption, like every aspect of my girlhood um, is shaped so strongly by consumption. And I think that's why I'm so interested in it still, because I have to believe maybe even to make myself feel better that there's creativity and consumption. Like even as we, even as it's thought of as something very passive, that there's still something that we do when these objects make it into our lives. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And that there's a way that we can, you know, make that interaction between us and this object and us and this doll into something that is creative in some way. So I am also interested in, kids who like would play with Barbies for some reason especially Barbies but they would Mm -hmm. like destroy their Barbies you know kind of like have them do all these crazy movements like put their hair on fire you know I always hear this rhetoric around Barbies and not so much other dolls and have you come across any reason to why that is? you know 
I, I haven't come across any reason to why that is, but there's this great book called The Secret Lives of Girls by Sharon Lamb. And so she talks a little bit about this, like naked Barbies <laughs> and, um, you know, why, why kids Barbies are always like naked or beheaded. And she sees that as like this way in which, um, Barbie is a kind of like blank slate or like tabula rasa that children feel like they could really manipulate. And so they're able to play off both aggression. So like, you know, chopping the head off and yeah. sexuality. Right. And she talks about how like both aggression and sexuality are things that like young girls are not supposed to have or are not supposed to perform and that the Barbie sort of provides an avenue for girls to be aggressive and to be sexual. Um, my own thinking as it relates to that too would be like, and I I didn't so much, I wasn't so much violent with Barbies, but definitely like messed with them quite a bit. But um, there's something about the plasticity of Barbie and there's something I think about her lack of, like she doesn't seem organic in any way, right? Like it's not just because she's made out of plastic. There's something about her, whole body that's like so I don't know it's so plastic so I think there's a way like it 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 does this weird thing where you're like oh this is like totally not a human sentient thing and I can just sort of put it through all this stuff um and not worry about it but I think there's also a little smidgen of femphobia or sexism um, and not to say that children are, are, are being this or thinking that, but I also think, right, if we think about feminine bodies, there's a way in which our culture feels that feminine bodies can be put through all kinds of things, right? And that you don't need to negotiate consent or agency. So I think there's a little bit of that too. And I think Barbie perhaps having like breasts and appearing more adult potentially contributes to that in in some way right like especially in earlier decades it was like well you know if you're perceived to be a sexual woman then like you know whatever happens to you is is might be something that you know contributed to whatever you know victim blaming blaming type right. stuff so I feel like there's a mix there of sort of like misogyny sexism sort of this idea of Barbie as inorganic and potentially not human that all sort of comes together to shape the ways in which Barbie um, is dealt with. I think with Barbie too, like no matter how she looks at this point, so like the morphology might change, but it's such an iconic brand, right? It's such an iconic trademark that I think it's already sort of open to that kind of, you know, play that's like very transformational. There's a really, there's another great book on Barbie called Barbie's Queer Accessories, where she talks about Barbie as a very queer and queering type of figure. Her name is Erica Rand, who wrote that book. She has like a great analysis. I think basically she's just sort of talking about how Barbie is queer, right? Like even for as much as we sort of understand that she does have a very specific history in terms of how she came about. She was based on a German sex doll. And there's a way in which Erica Rand does talk about how that history was covered over as Mattel was really trying to market the doll to families and get like a broader audience. So she talks about how like both the imaging and the messaging around Barbie shifted from this kind of idea of sensuality to one around this fantasy that like Barbie could be anyone that she would allow girls to become anyone they wanted to be and how this sort of discourse about 
this almost like meritocracy discourse um, was used to cover over Barbie's history as an object that came out of like a very particular kind of erotic space, right? And right. so she says that like that history, even as Mattel has sanitized it, still lingers in Barbie as a doll. And so there's all of these queer ways that Barbie is sort of negotiated with, like queer artists use Barbie in their artwork, right? right. Um, and so there's a way in which like Barbie contributes to queer life, even as her stated packaging and marketing is totally not that. Okay, I guess my last question is... We've talked a lot about Barbie's messaging and Mattel does have that very specific narrative that they're trying to push about Barbie. Do you mm -hmm. find that most kids actually pay attention to the way that companies will market the dolls, like the specific narratives that they give the dolls or not? I think it's a little bit of both, right? Like, I think there's a way that they do sometimes, like children will take that narrative and, and it will script a decent amount of their play but I do think that there's often a lot of imaginative space even within that narrative and sometimes outside of that narrative that children will take that doll either by changing the clothes or in the play like changing the scenario right mm -hmm. um changing who the character might be at a given moment or having Barbie's play with like Disney princesses from a different line and and all of a sudden it's like a totally different thing so although I do think that the stated marketing does do a lot in terms of scripting play I think there's always room for children to um trouble that to complicate that without even intending to just as like being children and being imaginative in those ways so um I think it's a little bit of both my favorite brat stalls were the twins. I don't know if you know them. Um, I don't know the Roxy, twins. Phoebe and Roxy. It's because uh -huh. I was obsessed with twins when I was younger because of all the twin media, like Mary-Kate and Ashley. Yes. And like the parent trap and um, sister, sister. Sis yeah, it was a <laughs> thing. That's so true. It was totally a thing. Yeah, it was so big. And even the, um, the newest American Girl doll from like the 90s, I think they're twins. Um, mm. to kind of capture the the era but yeah I really like these two twins but I didn't like the names that they had and it was so arbitrary just because I couldn't pronounce Phoebe like it just it annoyed me <laughs> so I was like this is no she's no longer that <laughs> so what was she called I think I called her Natalie <laughs> okay you're like you're, you're Natalie you're Natalie now right that's but then it. I kept We're the other on. girl as Roxy because I was like yeah that's a cool name <laughs> I love it is a good name it is a good name that is so funny and it's weird like and I wonder if it was my own internalized weird racial shame or something but like I even think about like when Mattel tried to market to girls like me and like oh there's a Teresa doll like I didn't want the Teresa doll it's yeah. like it's, you know it's weird like sometimes like they really try to market to write like racialized communities very particularly and sometimes it just doesn't hit I don't know I don't know what I was there but I just was not excited I was not excited yeah I can agree with that for sure because I remember I was really into Jade like the Asian brat doll mm -hmm. I think it's because she was like part of the original lineup like they weren't exactly in a way I was like she's an OG versus with any of the yes. Barbie 
like um the dolls of the world I was kind of like what is this like Barbie is blind. I know I <laughs> especially know especially when they didn't give them different names too and it was just like, like I was like what is this in a costume I mean it's it was pretty Barbie. much like a costume like oh now she's wearing this this outfit from Mexico and it's like mm, yeah that's not really working for me and you're right and I think there's a way that brats are even like even racially ambiguous in different ways right so like even I think a lot of girls didn't even necessarily sometimes even make those kinds of distinctions among brats like I think like you said like they all came out at the same time and like their features are so like dramatic anyway that like yeah. I feel like even trying to racially code them right isn't they're not so easy to racially code I guess right. I should say as something like Barbie Okay, thank you so much, Jillian. This was so insightful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, we've reached the end of the episode. As always, thank you guys so much for listening and for supporting. Um, if you want to keep up with the Highbrow Podcast Instagram account, it's uh, Instagram.com slash highbrows.pod. <laughs> um, I'll see you next week, and I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.